Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, or you can open that Bible app, but join me, if you will, in John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Now, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to do something a little bit different than we normally do. I'm going to begin by reading the passage, John chapter 5, verses 13 through 22. And then we're going to look at a number of different passages in Scripture before we come back to this particular text. And so, let me just begin by reading John chapter 5, uh, there in verse 13. You have the Bible open in front of you. Here's what God's Word says. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he, had, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that, God, that Jesus had spoken. I read a quote this week from a secular author by the name of Julian Barnes, and I thought that it was quite interesting. He wrote this, he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And Barnes goes on to talk about how he's wrestling with purpose and meaning in life. Now, I bring this up because I think that this is something that a lot of people in our culture today are wrestling with as well. That, that our culture has largely rejected God, has turned from Him, and now there, there's all of this confusion about why life is so challenging and difficult, why so many of us are lacking purpose and meaning. Many of us grew up thinking that things in life were just going to get better. That there was, as technology advanced and as people experienced freedoms, things were just going to get better and better and better. Not just here, but all around the world. Now, what's ironic is that if that, that, that's not how things have worked. If things had worked in that way, we would be in a perfect society. But that's not what we're seeing today. I mean, just think about how things have happened over the past number of months. Think about this past year. I overheard a kid the other day say this, 2020 stinks. It's the worst day ever. And I thought, you know what? That's kind of a good way of describing it. It's the worst day ever. And I don't think that it's going to get better anytime soon, or at least it doesn't seem like it is. Today, you woke up in what's being called a global pandemic. You woke up with political divisions everywhere with social and racial tensions. For every news story or article that's written from one perspective, there are five stories that are written from the opposite perspective. Well, uh, Fox News says this. Well, CNN says this. And our world is an absolute mess. We are in a bit of a crisis. 
And so what is the answer to all of this? What exactly went wrong? Is there hope for our society today? Well, what we're going to do is see from the scriptures today is that our, our secular world has sought to experience progress and success in this world apart from God. We have sought to bring about peace without the Prince of Peace. We've sought to the kingdom, but we don't want the king. The real problem today, the problem that we have experienced down through history, is that we were made for God. In the same way that a car is made to run on gasoline, we were made to be in the presence of God. We were made to experience the fullness of life in the presence of God. And when we unplug ourselves from the presence of God, it's kind of like unplugging a ventilator where life just begins to fizzle out. Whether they realize it or not, our culture today is shouting out, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. In light of that, today uh, we're going to be talking about the temple of God. I want to show you the significance of this going all the way back to the very beginning, back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, because that's really where this picture of the temple all starts. From day one, God was on a mission to flood this earth with his, with his presence. Now, a lot of us don't read Genesis 1 and 2 this way, but from the very beginning, the Garden of Eden was structured as a garden sanctuary, as a garden temple where God and humanity were going to dwell together. This is what God intended for the Garden of Eden. We often think of heaven as God's space, that heaven is where God lives, the earth is the space where humanity lives, and the two just never overlap. But the story of the Bible actually tells us that the Garden of Eden was a place where heaven and earth would come together, where, where uh, they were one. I, I love this picture in Genesis chapter 3, where it talks about God walking through the garden with humanity. God's plan was not to be far off and distant. No, God's plan, God's intention from the very beginning was to make his home with people, to be on the earth, to dwell with Adam and Eve and with all of humanity and to be worshipped by us. This Garden of Eden was designed to uh, kind of spread out over the whole world. And this world uh, would, uh, this whole world would be the dwelling place for God in the midst of humanity. And this is what God's intention was from the very beginning. We all know the tragedy of the fall, that sin entered into this world, and instead of the presence of God spreading out all over this world, brokenness and dysfunction, rebellion and wickedness is now everywhere that we look. And this garden sanctuary where humanity was supposed to dwell eternally in peace with God and with each other was now fractured. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the presence of God. There were angels placed at the entrance of the garden, and now there was this divide. Now, it's not like God, he didn't want to be around humanity. It's not that God is afraid of our sin. It's that his holiness functions as a bit of a disinfectant that eliminates and wipes out our sin. And it's not that he doesn't want us, but that we don't want him. And it's not that he can't survive in our presence, but that we can't survive in his presence because of our sin. And so Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, out of the presence of God. 
And yet the story doesn't stop there. In fact, the whole story of Scripture is a story of God's repeated breaking into the world with His presence. It's a story of God's unrelenting desire to bring His presence to His people. It's like God is saying, listen, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not removing my presence from you. But, but I, 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 or I, I have removed my presence from you. But I, I'm going to unleash my presence on the world again in, in new ways. Now, we don't have time to look at all of these different accounts throughout the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, really the story of God's presence breaking in is uh, into very specific places is what we see over and over and over again. There are a lot of examples of this, but I just want to give you a few. One of these is in Bethel, that in Genesis chapter 28, we read about this man by the name of Jacob, who later was given the name Israel. He's the patriarch of the people of Israel. Jacob is running for, for his life from his brother. He's out in the wilderness and he's in this place that he names Bethel, and he, and, and he names it Bethel because it's there that he encounters God in this very unique way. If you fast forward uh, the story a bit, you get to Exodus, and you meet a man by the name of Moses who encounters God at the burning bush. Now, if Moses is 30 miles away from the burning bush, he's not in the presence of God in the same way that he is when he's like 15 feet away from the bush. When Moses got to the bush, God spoke and told him, hey, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And God says, you know what? I am uniquely here. I am dwelling here in a powerful way. He is specifically making his presence known in this place. If you fast forward again in Exodus chapter 40, there, is, there was this place called the tabernacle, which was this giant tent. It had all of these different sections in it. And, and we actually have a picture of this tabernacle, what it would have looked like. And what you see there is that there, there is one place that's called the holy place. And then there is this curtain. And then on the other side of that curtain is this other place that's called the most holy place. And that is where the Ark of the Covenant would sit. The presence of God would come in a very unique and powerful way and dwell among his people. There, were, there was this garden imagery in the tabernacle. and Basically, God is saying, you know what, I'm recreating the Garden of Eden in this tent form. And just like my intention was to dwell in, with humanity in the garden, that's what I'm going to do here in this tabernacle. In fact, as the people of Israel would pack up the tabernacle, as they would move from one place to another, the scriptures describe how the presence of God would lead them with a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And God was uniquely dwelling with his people in a specific place. When the children of Israel finally got into the promised land, a more permanent structure was created in the temple. You can read about this in Second Chronicles chapter 7. But there the, the King Solomon, he builds this beautiful place for God. And it, and it becomes a very significant thing in the life of Israel. Now, I want to talk here for, for just a moment about the significance of the temple so that you can better kind of wrap your mind around the importance of this. And especially how it's important for the people of Israel. The original temple, as I said, it was built by King Solomon. That temple was destroyed. Later on, it was rebuilt under the leadership of a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. 
Over the centuries, uh, the, the temple building fell into disrepair. And many years later, King Herod would uh, do this massive renovation project on the temple. Now, Herod spent lots of money. He spent lots of resources on this temple. It, it took him 46 years to rebuild this temple. And it became one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It was an incredibly breathtaking symbol for the people of Israel. And so when you think about the temple, particularly in Jesus' day, I want you to just uh, think about three specific things that should come to your mind. First of all, the temple was a place of the presence and worship of God. A place of the presence and worship of God. Even though God's presence can't be contained by the highest of heavens, it, it, uh, he, that, that he is uniquely dwelling with his people inside of the temple. If you wanted to meet with God, you would actually physically go to the temple. If you, you would take these pilgrimages to the temple, and sometimes it would take even months to get there because that's where God would dwell, and that's where his people would, would be able to meet with him. This is the place called the temple. It was a place of worship, a place where you could encounter the presence of God and worship him. Second thing about the temple is that this was a place of sacrifice and forgiveness, a place of sacrifice and forgiveness. The, the people of Israel had priests, and these priests, they're constantly standing there. They, they receive, uh, they're ready to receive the people as they come and make these animal sacrifices in order that their sins might be forgiven. And so this was a powerful place. It was a place of the presence of God. It was a place for the worship of God. It was a place of sacrifice. And if you wanted to hear a word of assurance, you would go to the temple. It was the place of forgiveness. And then thirdly, the temple in Jesus' day was both theological and political. It was theological and political. It's kind of hard to understand the temple because it's kind of like the White House and the church combined. The temple was the most profound symbol of worship that existed in that day in the people of Israel. But it was also a place where the Jewish Sanhedrin would meet. It was a place where the government would set their laws for the people of Israel. And so the temple was a very significant place. As an Israelite, if you were at the temple, you had the very presence of God. On the other hand, if you didn't have the temple, you, you didn't have God. And you just need to remember that this is God's intention from the very beginning. It, it, wasn't, to, it, it wasn't that he wanted his presence contained to a temple, but God wanted the temple to be a way where he would spread his presence and flood this earth with himself. That, that's what God wanted, and yet the temple failed. Not because the temple itself was a failure, but because the people of Israel continued to fall into sin. And just like Adam and Eve, they continued to repeat the same cycle. And so, the temple was very significant. But I just want to point out there that there, is, there were things about the temple, the activities that happened there that failed to meet God's intended purpose. The temple failed because there was this decline to man-centered religion. A decline to man-centered religion. <clears throat> Somewhere along the line, the people of Israel forgot what was most important. And they thought that all God cared about was animal sacrifices. 
Like, all we have to do is to make God happy is to have these rituals and these cleansings to make these animal sacrifices. And if we do that, God's going to be happy with us, and then he's going to bless us. And so what happened over time is that the people of Israel had a heart that was disconnected from God, even though they were still going through all of these other rituals. And the fact is, is that God hated every minute of it. In fact, the prophets in the Old Testament talk about this. One of the prophets, Amos, speaks about this. God is speaking through Amos to the people. And here's what God says in in Amos chapter 5 and verse 21. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened calves, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I mean, can you imagine God showing up here at St. Paul's Bible Church on a Sunday morning and just saying, hey, stop singing. Stop singing, not because you sound bad when you sing, but because your hearts are far from me. It's pretty intense here. God says, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God's saying, you know what? You need to realign your heart with mine. You need to get in step with me. Otherwise, the animal sacrifices and the songs really don't mean much at all. I want you. I want you as my people. God's desire was to dwell with his people. But the temple had declined into man-centered religion and all of these rules and regulations had been added that kept the people far away from God. And God never intended for that to happen. And so the temple, it was meant to be a place of worship, but it had become dead. It had become empty. Also, God had told Solomon that any foreigner who would come to the temple, uh, God would engraft that foreigner into his family. And so the temple was not just for the Jewish people. The the temple was to be a light to the nations. And, And yet, by the time of Jesus, all of these restrictions and regulations had been put in place that were keeping people out of the temple. You see, all of these things happen, particularly as we get to the end of the Old Testament. And you think, wow, I mean, is there ever going to be a time where God is going to be with his people, where there there is not going to be this worship that is just empty and dead, when, when God is going to be with us and we are going to be with him? And then we get Jesus. Well, we're going to go back to John chapter 2 in just a moment here, but First, I want us to see something in John chapter 1. I want you to just see how John announces his, uh, makes his announcement about this good news of Jesus. He talks about Jesus being the Word and uh, the, the Word of God come in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14, we read this. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as to the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is one of the most breathtaking verses in all of the Bible. Because here's what it's saying. Instead of just leaving it up to the temple, God himself left his place of glory. He broke into this world in his very presence. Greek, the word dwelt, literally means to 
pitch your tent among someone, to tabernacle among a people. And that's what God did. God made his home with humanity by becoming a human being and literally walking on this earth in order to break down every barrier that would keep us as sinful humanity from dwelling with God. That Jesus broke down the barriers and he said, you know what? I am. I'm not just a, a temple. I am the temple. I am the very presence of God. I am tabernacling among you. I, I'm making my home with you. Presence of God moves from places like Bethel to the Ark of the Covenant to the temple and now to a person. It's a, a big transition. That Jesus is God's presence come to us. Now, with that in mind, I want to get back here to John chapter 2. Context of this is that Jesus is cleansing the temple, which is quite interesting. Uh, we often read this story of Jesus and we kind of think of it as a freakout moment. Like, typically he's pretty calm, but this particular day he's kind of walking past the temple, he sees the money changers, he, he loses it on them, and he just drives them out of the temple. But that's not really what's happening here. If you remember, Jesus had traveled to the temple every year as a boy. In fact, as part of the Jewish tradition, his mom and his dad would take him for certain ceremonies and certain religious holidays. Jesus went to the temple regularly. At least once a year, he and his family would take this journey to the temple. During those many travels, uh, those many trips to the temple, Jesus is seeing these money changers and they're doing their business inside of the temple complex. They're hiking up their prices. They're taking advantage of people who would come and worship there. They're making a mockery out of the house of God. And Jesus sees this. The time of his public ministry has come. He is cool. He is calm, collected. He makes a whip, which doesn't happen in just a couple of seconds he knows what he's doing. He drives these people out of the temple. John chapter 2 and verse 16, Jesus says this. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, a house of presence, a house of the dwelling of God with humanity. And so in light of this, we now pick up in verse 18. The religious leaders they're questioning Jesus. Hey, why, why did you do this? Why, who gave you the right to drive us out of the temple? And it says this. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Notice Jesus' response. Verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? In other words, uh, they're looking at the, this giant structure, this temple complex. Jesus says, uh, destroy this temple and I'll raise it back up in three days. And they're like, Jesus, you're insane. I mean, this took a really long time for us to build this thing. This is a wonder of the ancient world. How are you going to rebuild this in three days? And look at what Jesus says. Look at what it says in verse uh, 21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. You know, Jesus is making it very clear here in this passage that he is the truer and the better temple. 
That the temple all along was to be a shadow. It was just a painting. It was just a signpost. But it was all pointing us to Jesus who himself is the temple of God. He is the very presence of God. He is wrapped in human flesh. He is coming to dwell among us. When Jesus went to the cross, it's as if he went into the Holy of Holies, not with a sacrifice of an animal, but with the sacrifice of his own body and his own blood, broken and shed for his people. Jesus is the temple. He is the high priest. He is the sacrifice. He's all these things in one. He offers himself to God in our place, and Jesus dies so that we could be brought back into the presence of God. I want to show you an artist's rendition of Golgotha. A lot of us uh, don't really think about how Golgotha and Jerusalem and uh, all of this area is structured, but you see these three crosses here and in the foreground, and then in the background you see Jerusalem and the temple. And I, I just imagine Jesus, he's outside of the city walls. He, he's uh, gazing over at the temple as he's hanging there on the cross. He was cast out so that we might enter in. Jesus was driven outside of the city so that you and I might be welcomed back, in, back home into the very presence of God. And Jesus was not far away from the temple as he breathes his last. And as the curtain in that temple, the ter- curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of humanity, it's torn in two from the very top to the very bottom. And in that moment, it's as if Jesus is saying, friends, I'm busting this thing down. Come on in. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you've been a moral person or if you've been an immoral person in the past. It doesn't matter if you are old or if you are young. It doesn't matter what your race is, what your ethnicity is, what your gender is, whatever. Come on in. I've broken down the dividing wall. You you are welcome. I've brought you into the very presence of God. And this, friends, this is the good news of the scriptures. Now, in light of all of that, in light of what Jesus has done on the cross for you and for me, I want to just read one more passage of scripture for us today. This is uh, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 13, and here's what we read. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens." But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God 
by the Spirit. Here's the last transition. The presence of God moves from places to a person. And then in a bizarre turn of events, the presence of God moves from a person to a people. The church becomes the temple of God. You and I are a home for God. What does it mean that God would make his dwelling place with you? I want you to think about your dwelling place once. I want you to think about your home for a moment. This is the place where you go after a long day's worth of work. It's the place where you prop your feet up on the coffee table. It's the place where you relax, where you kind of unplug, where you enjoy time with your family. God has made you his dwelling place. He's not ashamed. He he wants to be near you. He wants to be around you. Here's the crazy part. He actually is using you and me. He's using the church as his garden sanctuary, his new temple, in which he's going to flood this whole world with his presence. And the story of the Bible is not a story of God ripping people off of planet earth and throwing the earth into the trash and just starting all over again. No, the story of the Bible is a story about God bringing heaven to earth. And ultimately, as we read earlier in Revelation chapter 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, with humanity. That's how the story ends. God dwelling with us. So where do we go from here? Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are being invited in by him. There's literally nothing that is holding you back from the presence of God anymore because of Jesus. What you are instructed to do is to enter through the narrow gate of Jesus Christ. You do that through repentance of sin. You do that through faith in Jesus Christ. You actually come to him renouncing your old way of life. You trust in him And through faith in Jesus, you are welcomed into the very presence of God. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to say to you that if if the presence of God is this important, and it's a major emphasis, a major theme in the scriptures, it's what makes the people of God the people of God. The presence of God is so overwhelmingly significant. And so my encouragement to you today is that you would hunger, that you would thirst after the presence of the living God at work in your life. In a culture where there are so many who are seeking after progress, I think that the Bible calls us as Christians to seek after His presence. What would it be like if we as followers of Jesus would long for the very presence of God? What, what, what would, uh, how would uh, having a real hunger and a real thirst for him affect your everyday life? How would it affect my everyday life? We want to be a people that God dwells among. That instead of running after the things of this world, we run to him. And he changes and transforms everything about us as he dwells in us and among us. Let's pray.